Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking about OpenLux, an investigation examining how dodgy money from around the world poured into secretive shell companies in Luxembourg. Unlike other investigations, OpenLux does not stem from a leak of private documents. It is based solely on the collection of public data gradually put online by Luxembourg. To fully understand how this collaborative investigation came together, we sat down with Le Mans' Maxime Vidano and OCCRP's Antonio Baccaro. The pair talked to us about collaborating on the OpenLux investigation, how they scraped the data using Python, and the overall impact of the investigation. All that's coming up after this. Support for this episode of Conversations with Data and the following message come from Flockinet.is. Flockinet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press, and whistleblower projects. The company operates data centers in Iceland, Romania, and Finland. Flockinet's core values revolve around privacy and freedom of speech, while providing autonomous, incorruptible, and flexible solutions optimized to help you spread your ideas freely. Don't forget that Flockinet is offering datajournalism.com members a special package with free shared hosting web space and a free domain name. Flockinet is also offering a 5% discount on all their products with the code OpenLux. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Maxime Vidano and Antonio Vaccaro. Antonio and Maxime, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I just wanted to start with the Open Lux investigation. Lamond and OCCRP, along with another, a number of other news organizations, um, worked together on this collaborative investigation across borders, looking at the hidden side of Luxembourg's offshore industry. And I just wondered if you could give us like an overview and a top line of what this investigation was about and, and generally what you found. So Luxembourg is not uh, something uh, completely new for a journalist, especially interested in, in tax avoidance, because there was a big scandal in 2014, the LuxLeaks, uh, based on uh, leaks from um, uh, tax rulings uh, from uh, a big uh, audit and accounting firm, a PwC, and um, we wanted to to know whether this scandal and the regulation that went afterwards had any impact on Luxembourg and whether it was still uh, a tax haven as we as we thought, or uh, whether um, Luxembourg had, had moved to something else. So there was a great tool for us to explore this. It was not a leak as in the LuxLeaks, but it was uh, open source data because a few years ago, the European Union voted a new regulation that uh, asked all the uh, EU members like Luxembourg to um, publish online a register saying who really owns the companies in every country. We call this the ultimate beneficial owner. So it's, it's a great way to, to bring transparency to the corporate world and to be able to know uh, who is behind uh, the nominees and uh, 
uh, all the, the instruments that I use for opacity usually in the tax havens. So uh, there was this uh, register that was uh, published online um, in 2019, and we just used it. Uh, we scraped it, the old register, and uh, and then we, we did some uh, data analysis, and uh, we gathered like a dozen of, of partners from different countries and tried to figure out what we could do with that. Uh, what all those names mean? Uh, what does this mean for the Luxembourg economy? Can we prove that Luxembourg is still a tax haven or that it moved to some something else? And uh, that was pretty much the starting point. And Antonio, did you want to add to that at all? Yeah, the, the idea from the beginning was that uh, the data belonged to, to Le Monde, but the way they they conduct this this kind of investigation is really easy. So it's really, I mean, it's really easy to work with that. So we in our CCRP were focused on criminality and we found a lot of profiles, really interesting profiles. And we were, we shared all of them with, with Le Monde and with the other partners. And we invite any partner if they see an, an interesting topic and an interesting name to create a group and to start a project together. And it was amazing because even in cases where Le Monde, for example, or other media at the end were not interested in by themselves in the story for their own media, they helped us. And the same was in the other direction. I mean, there were some cases where we won't publish that story, but we think that we could help the other media partner and we helped. And uh, at the end of the project, personally, I was exhausted because it was a year and it was, an, it was not an easy project. But I was really satisfied, not only by the result, the final result, but uh, by the path we had till that result. Uh, and we built a project based on friendship and, on collab and, and truly cooperation from journalists from all over the world. I mean, we had a project, for example, in Indonesia, an amazing story about one, maybe the guy who himself as an individual is responsible of more environmental destruction in the earth. And we worked together with an uh, Indonesian uh, media partner, Tempo, uh, with a German newspaper, Le Monde helped us, uh, and OCCRP. So when you see the final result, I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, and how to say, we decided in, in, in open looks, we OCCRP, but Le Monde as well, and other media that our story wouldn't be only saying somebody has a company in Luxembourg. Because having a company in Luxembourg is not illegal. So the, we decided that we need to found criminal stories or tax avoidance stories behind that. And these projects, and you should know, and, and Maxime knows, uh, sometimes are like a mountain. I mean, you have a leak, you organize the data, and you start uh, discovering names. So you are in the, you are really excited. <laughs> then you see that, well, what you have is just a company or account number. Uh, well, it's a lot of work there to do. So then you get a bit depressed, but then you keep working and you see that, and you start finding stories. So you get excited again. So uh, the whole experience 
was was amazing. I think the result, not only journalistic, it, the, the story in itself had a big impact. I think we are, as an investigative journalist, we shouldn't work just for the others say, hey, you are an amazing journalist. You need, we need to work that with an objective. And these objectives, in my opinion, should be that our stories have an impact. I think we need to contribute to a better world. Okay, and, and I think in that case, in this case, this investigation and the way that OCCP, Le Monde and other media partners ran it had a, a huge impact inside the European Union. And the proof is that they, at the end, uh, Luxembourg, they replied at the beginning, but they shut up at the end because they, they found that they couldn't say anything. And what's great about this is that beyond Luxembourg itself, uh, the project was a good proof of concept uh, of transparency because all the information that we started with were open source information that were uh, publicly available, but poorly accessible. And what we did as journalists was to access this to uh, filter uh, it for the public because it's impossible for the public to go uh, through uh, hundreds of thousands of companies. But in the end, uh, it's it just a, a proof that that transparency works, and that uh, all that we've been um, advocating for in the past few years uh, about corporate transparency, about the fact that we have to know who is behind the companies, what the companies are used for. Uh, it was just an example, Luxembourg, uh, but it could be any other tax haven, and I think it it can have an impact on uh, the vision that we have. Uh, as a community as in the European Union, uh, whether there should be transparency about all these structures that are used for good purposes in some cases and bad purposes in other. And I'd like to talk more about the, um, the data process that you went about for you know, scraping uh, this EBO registry. Um, what, what, how did you actually scrape it? What tools did you use to do this? Okay, so we had a developer at Le Monde who is called Maxime Ferrer who, who did most of the process. So he used uh, Python to, uh, to scrape the register. It's quite easy to scrape compared to other websites or other registers because there are no real um, technical difficulties. Um, all the companies in Luxembourg have a different number. So you just uh, type the number like B, uh, one, two, three, uh, B, one, two, four, and uh, you can have information. So what we did was just to automate uh, the fact to go on, on the website of the register and to gather information. Uh, so then the challenge was uh, to be able to keep it updated because the register is updated every day. So uh, we had to do it very regularly to be able to, uh, to gather new names, to um, uh, determine when the name uh, was wiped out of the register because if someone is not uh, a beneficial owner anymore, it just disappears from the register uh, forever. So uh, the fact to be able to scrape it like every two or four days uh, makes it uh, easy for us to have an history. And then there was a big challenge of uh, what we do with all this data. So th that was the, the big contribution of OCCRP because OCCRP has a great, great tool called Aleph where you can just uh, put in um, every kind of data that you want and it makes it very easy to uh, organize this data 
and to uh, cross-check it with other data sets. So um, that was the first part of the data process. And then at Le Monde, we were interested in um, doing more of a quantitative analysis of uh, the, the Luxembourg economy uh, through this register. So what we did was to uh, scrape and get all the documents that were filed by the companies, which include financial statements, for example. And then we were able to, um, to put an OCR, which is a character recognition, to be able to determine what was inside those PDFs. Um, and we were able to extract all the financial data, for example, the revenues of the company, the assets. And uh, at the end of a very long and difficult process, we were able to get through to a, a very big number of 5 trillion euros of assets inside the Luxembourg companies. So this is a very conservative uh, estimation because we were not able to exploit all the company's uh, statements. But it was still very new because this uh, figure doesn't exist anywhere. Uh, the academics are not able to, to have this. Even the authorities in Luxembourg don't have this kind of uh, figure. So it was uh, also a good uh, exercise for us to be able to extract so much data and to analyze it. And uh, let me add one thing. Uh, this analysis of the data and having the, the total amount of money there and the total amount and number of the, 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 the last figure of companies, they tell you that the authorities lie. I mean, they lie in the, in the numbers of, of company registered. They lie in the numbers of company that have been registered and have provided the UBO, so the, the tax of companies. And this data analysis allows you to go outside and say, hey, look, uh, the Luxembourg government says that, I think they said 80% of the companies have filed the UBO, but the reality is that less than 50% have filed the UBO. Uh, so that's why it's so important, this analysis of, uh, of um, open source data. Uh, because, and, the journal, and sometimes, and there's a problem we have the journalists all around the world, we just believe the authorities. They say, okay, because it's official, it's an official who is saying that they 70% uh, or 80% of the companies have registered the, the UBO, but the reality is not like that. So you need to go to the data and check the data and see if what they are saying is true or not. And would you say that was like one of the key findings from this investigation? I would say what is, it was one of the main findings. I mean, just having the possibility to say with data in your hands that the Luxembourg authorities are providing uh, an information which is not accurate, that uh, you can show that the, the, the business registry and the UBO registry uh, is keeping information that is not accurate and nobody is checking there, nobody there is checking this information. I mean, I think the, you will remember better than me, Maxime, but we, we have found people who was born three uh, centuries ago something like that, which is people with 300 years and it's impossible. I mean, it's not only a question to have a, a, a registry, you need to have an, a really accurate registry. And one of the, 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 the main things, the key parts of the project, of, the, of this project was showing that not, not only the, the, the registry was partly secret, that, but as well that the registry was not accurate. 
And I wonder what were some of the other major findings um, from this investigation? And did you go into it thinking from OCCRP's standpoint, okay, we have these people in mind who we've come across before in other investigations we're looking out for? When you have a, a, a data like this, you find a lot of individuals, a lot of people of interest. But sometimes we made the mistake to focus a lot on individual cases. So I think that, that in English exists the expression that doesn't see the forest by the trees or for the trees. So you need to try to see the forest as well. And you need to see if there's a trend. And for, for doing this, the data analysis is really important. I mean, it's not the same when you find uh, 10 cases of dodgy people having accounts, having companies in Luxembourg, then if you find a lot of dodgy people from a lot of countries, from all over the world, and in a, in a dynamic who has lasted decades, that's something different. Yeah, as a data journalist, I'm very used to work with a quantitative approach. And uh, for Le Monde, we, we did this very much. Uh, for example, we found out that, that there were many very rich uh, families from France in the data set. And instead of focusing on one family or two families, we did uh, a very long uh, work uh, trying to, uh, to map all the assets of the top rich uh, families. And for example, we were able to prove that 37 of the 50 wealthiest families in France were in the data set, were having assets in Luxembourg. So that was uh, more striking for us to say that uh, most families uh, have their assets in Luxembourg than focusing on one and doing some name in shame. Uh, we always have to, to, to give names because we have to, uh, to, to have an inclination for the, for the public, uh, for the reader to be able to understand what it's about. But uh, it's, it's more striking to have big numbers and to be able to determine whether there is a trend. And this data was so rich that we could do this. And I'm curious if data visualization or mapping this in some way was important for this investigation or was that not necessarily, did you feel like that was not going to have as much of an impact? It was more about writing these pieces across all these different media partners and letting them run with it. We didn't have a big focus on data visualization in our publication at the end, but during the process of uh, working and investigating, it was important. Uh, for example, we used a mind mapping tool uh, to be able to reconstruct the structures of the company because it's usually very complicated. There is one structure uh, which has a subsidiary in another country and two subsidiaries in uh, Luxembourg. And so the, the structures are very complex. We are able to uh, rebuild the structure from zero by uh, looking at the documents, but it's very long. And uh, using this kind of uh, data visualization tools helps us understand what it's about. But um, it's so complicated that it's not worth it uh, to publish it. And I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about why Luxembourg is still so attractive for nefarious characters who are trying to launder money. What makes it different from Switzerland or the Cayman Islands or other locations around the world that are known for setting up shell companies or hiding money? Well, the top advantage of uh, Luxembourg is that it's a member of the European Union, uh, as opposed to the Cayman Islands or uh, Switzerland. So once you achieve to put your money in Luxembourg, 
whether it's real money uh, owned uh, with uh, legitimate work or you want to launder bad money. Once you have entered the European Union, then you can invest it very uh, easily and the controls are very rare. So uh, we, we found out that many criminals, uh, people having um, uh, bad money, wanted to use Luxembourg as a point of entry. And uh, why they use Luxembourg is that it's a tiny, tiny country. It's very easy to, to uh, open a company. And um, actually, the country is overwhelmed by the, the strengths of its financial sector. There are so many companies and they are like uh, 100 people in the authorities uh, trying to verify and control what's happening. So it's a perfect situation for criminals because the the odds of getting caught are very uh, low. And I think they are uh, doing this calculation that uh, going to Luxembourg is not very risky. And then once you have it, we saw in many cases that then they invest in uh, Spain, in uh, Germany, in France. And so uh, I think it's the best of both worlds. It's uh, on one side, the tax haven, and on the other side, a European Union member. Yeah, yeah, it's a perfect place for landing your money from outside. And we have seen that in several cases. We have worked on, 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 on open looks. For example, we have, uh, with the help of Maxime, worked on the case of uh, the Bolichicos, the Venezuelan billionaires that had won a lot of, but an insane amount of money uh, for their connections with the uh, Chavez government and Maduro's government. So we have seen that they they had their money in a company in, I think, Barbados. And suddenly they decide to move that money, which was uh, uh, money with uh, certainly alleged origin because the company was under investigation. And they moved that company from Barbados to Luxembourg. So, and once in Luxembourg, they start to invest uh, first. They create all the companies there. They start to move companies, to move the money between companies. And then uh, they start investing money, in, especially in Spain. So what, we, what you see is that Luxembourg allows them to put lawyers and lawyers and lawyers between the origin of the money and the final investment. So uh, it's, it's great for them. Really, it's great for them. The, what, something that we have found during this investigation, and especially when we try to confront the UBOs, is that they were not aware, and they, they were pretty sure that nobody would ever know there, that they were the UBOs of those companies. And that's something that happened. I mean, you know, you can see how Maxim smiles, because it, it was really interesting that to, to discover, I mean, the, the reaction of those people. Were they shocked, or were they denying it, or...? I mean, for, where they were surprised. They were surprised that you were aware of that because they invested their money in Luxembourg, assuming that ever their name will appear. Because most of the times, it, it's really interesting. I mean, you go to the registry uh, and you go to the incorporation document and you see that the real UBO, even in that document, doesn't appear. That most of the times, those incorporations were made by local agents, lawyers, or, and so they were pretty sure that they would never appear. And suddenly, uh, a worldwide journalist corporation exposed everything. Yeah. Now, 
I know you initially published Open Lux in February 2021, but then I saw in Le Monde and OCCRP, you published something else called Lux Letters in early July 2021. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so th this uh, smaller project came out of the Open Lux because uh, uh, during the process of the investigation, we, we came uh, through uh, sources and... Uh, organization and uh, we're talking about, uh, for example, uh, about Luxembourg with the, the NGO Tax Justice Network, which is a very big NGO, very uh, involved in uh, in tax havens and trying to understand whether they can be abuses. And um, so we uh, came across um, many sources that uh, told us that there was a new hidden uh, practice in Luxembourg that was quite quite similar to the tax rulings that uh, were um, exposed by the LuxLeaks a few years ago. So the tax ruling is a document where uh, the, the tax authorities uh, uh, agree on a simplified uh, tax treatment of a company. And usually it's a way to pay less taxes than the official um, tax rate of the company. So we found out uh, with the LuxLeaks, for example, that big multinational companies like Amazon, Ikea, were paying less than the official uh, tax rate. And so this practice was supposed to be uh, ended or uh, was supposed to decrease very much after the LuxLeaks because uh, there were new regulations, there was transparency. So all the tax ruling had to be exchanged uh, with the other countries, which means that uh, you cannot do it uh, in a secret way. So uh, in the official numbers, this practice had pretty much disappeared. But what we found out is that uh, actually the tax advisors and the lawyers in Luxembourg found out a way to uh, circumvent this new regulation and to uh, create pretty much the same, which means uh, it's called letters of information. It's, it's very similar to a, um, a tax ruling. So the, you just uh, state in the document that you will pay uh, this kind of taxes and usually it's less than the, the official rate. Uh, but the thing is, the tax authority doesn't sign the documents, which uh, doesn't make it eligible for the, um, for the transparency process. So actually, uh, these documents uh, have pretty much the same purpose, but they are not uh, shared transparently with, uh, for example, with France or with Spain. So it's impossible to know, even for the European Commission, to know whether this happens or not. So... Um, with the Luxletters project, we were able to gather sources and to be able to expose this practice for the first time. Uh, and we hope that uh, this will prompt um, uh, an official investigation from the European, European Union to be able to determine whether this is a widespread practice and whether there have been abuses uh, of this. Because it's just the first step that we exposed, uh, but we were not able to quantify the phenomenon. And I'm curious if... COVID-19 has meant the public and maybe governments have more of an appetite for going after this tax money. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like people are a bit burned out from the news and they're kind of switching off a bit because it's just been so intense the past year and a half. But at the same time, there's a real need for this, for these corporations to pay their fair share. So we see that the developments of the last few weeks, for example, with the development of the minimum tax rates in, in the world, it's, it's uh, a revolution uh, in terms of uh, taxation because it makes many tax havens useless because uh, every big company will have to pay at least 
uh, 15% of uh, corporate tax. So it's it's worth less going to the Cayman Islands or, or Bermuda to pay zero. So that's a uh, real progress. Um, I don't think it's COVID-19 that uh, made uh, this happen, but I think it, it played a role, I think, because uh, we will have in the past, uh, in, in the next few years, we'll have a big budget problem in all the... Uh, um, all the big countries and we'll have to find money and uh, most countries are looking at new ways to, to tax the richest individuals and the richest companies. So uh, I think it's it's going to be a focus again in the next few years, maybe not in the very short term because people are concerned with uh, health problems and with the pandemic itself. But I think... Um, uh, open looks and other projects contribute to this discussion and maybe they will have uh, long-term effects uh, in one year or two years when we will be focusing politically on what we can do to um, to to gather money uh, for for our budget. And I wonder um, if there are any key learnings from these investigations you both have worked on. Do you feel like you have a really good template now for more collaborative work? Um, was there anything surprising that you found from this experience? Well, for, for me, it was the, the first big project, investigative project that I, I work as a coordinator in OCCRP. So for me, the first learning on this was how important it is to be fair and to be frank when you try to cooperate with others. I mean, when you work with others in a project like this, you need to, to commit to share everything. Uh, and then there's a second stuff is that it's really important to ask for help. I mean, this is not a, a competition among journalists to see who is the more intelligent. Uh, this is a, a, a cooperation. And if you don't know something, ask for help. And Maxime could say that uh, he suffered me a lot because <laughs> I was not a financial expert at the beginning. So I asked them a lot for help, him and his partners in Le Mans, and they helped me a lot. Uh, and, and in other cases, we helped them a lot. So that's, the main, that's the, my main learning. I mean, everybody knows how to do journalism, but when you work with other people, with other type of journalists, it's not only a question to have journalists in other countries. You need to have journalists with different skills, especially related to data, especially related to something that specific as, as, as financial documents, uh, company records. This is really important. So you need to have people who could understand a year account of a company, uh, a people who could have contacts with the prosecutor's offers, offices in, in, in several countries. So it's, it's really important to, to, to realize that you are not the best journalist in the world uh, and you need others to make your, your work the best journalistic work in the world. For me, the, the big, um, the, the very good point about this project is that it was a confirmation that um, of the convergence between uh, data-driven journalism and investigation. Of course, it was not the first time that we, we saw that, but um, 
Uh, I've been involved in the past uh, in uh, a few projects uh, like the, the ICIJ project, like the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, uh, but um, I hadn't been involved in the data part of it. So there, uh, the old project was based on the data that we're responsible to produce and the data sets that we're responsible to produce. Um, so it was uh, really a good proof of concept and a, a proof that as data journalists, because most of people from my team are data journalists, we can uh, bring new stories that uh, couldn't uh, be alive if, if we didn't have data. Uh, we didn't have any whistleblower. We didn't have any source at the beginning of this project. And everything, all these projects, all these, these uh, dozens of articles just came out of uh, data uh, journalism work. So um, it's it's really a good confirmation for me that uh, data journalism can have uh, really a very uh, widespread um, implication for journalism uh, in very various um um, domains uh, of uh, our work and especially in investigation now. So I think we're going to continue to go into more and more projects based on, on data and trying to find the investigative part of it in, in the future. Marvelous. Um, well, thank you so much, Maxime Vodavo and Antonio Baccaro for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Thank you, Tara. It was a pleasure. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today and to Flockynet for making this episode possible. Flockynet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press, and whistleblower projects. Don't forget that Flockynet is offering datajournalism.com members a special package with free shared hosting web space and a free domain name. Flockynet is also offering a 5% discount on all their products with the code OpenLux. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.